as a church, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, which might be the most famous portion of Jesus's teachings. And so you can go to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bible. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament uh, if you're new to the Bible. So we've been going through this sermon that Jesus gave almost 2,000 years ago. And in chapter 5 of the sermon, there's this key transition moment. In verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, religious leaders in that day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is setting up there is so important. I've said it before. It's the difference between mowing over weeds and pulling them up by their roots. It's the difference between treating symptoms and diagnosing a cause. It's the difference between a Tylenol 3 and getting reparative surgery. Because Jesus isn't just addressing sinful actions, he's speaking to the human heart out of which flows our actions, right? From murder to contempt, from adultery to lust, from symptom to cause, from bad fruit to the root of it. And Jesus is describing ethics in his kingdom, and he's showing his followers how their righteousness or right-relatedness must surpass the scribes or the teachers of the law, whose job was to commentate on the Old Testament law, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then in chapter 6, Jesus starts speaking about how our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, and again, he goes right to the heart of the matter. And he does so by speaking to three staples of first century Jewish spirituality, giving, prayer, and fasting. And last week, Alita quoted the New Testament scholar R.T. France, who writes, these three were and are the most prominent practical requirements for personal piety in mainstream Judaism. And in all of these examples, Jesus' teaching is forcing us to ask the question, whose approval are we really after? Whose approval are we really after? Jesus is going after the heart of the matter. And so let me read to you from his teaching on prayer. It's Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 9. It says this, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, the religious meeting place, and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, that's a descriptive word, not a derisive insult. Hey, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So before we dive into this text, let's just take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for your word through your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that inspire this word. And Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge your presence in this place, knowing that you want to illuminate this passage to our understanding, apply it to our hearts in a transformative way to make us more like 
Jesus. And so we say, have your way. Speak to us. In your name. Amen. In 2006, Mumbai, India, established 16 no-selfie zones across the city after several deadly accidents. That same year, the Washington Post reported that over 250 people have died in recent years while attempting to take a selfie. As one commentator writes, it appears our desire to be seen by others in extreme cases is actually killing us. That our culture's desire for online attention, our desire for social media likes, is in extreme cases killing us. Yet at the same time, we are hardwired to find approval from outside of ourselves. We heard this last week. We're motivated by attention. We're motivated by the approval of people we care about. We need someone to tell us our lives matter, right? We want someone to see us and like us and care about us. It's not all bad. But in all of it, we can come to believe a lie. We might start to believe our lives only matter if they're noticed by others or approved of by the crowd. Listen to Sky Jathani. He writes this. In this selfie culture, we must hear Jesus' reminder that what is done in secret is what matters most. Real intimacy, whether with another person or God, requires privacy and shuns publicity. This is why Jesus calls us to conduct our charity, our fasting, and our praying without being noticed by others. Or you might say, without the desire to be noticed by others. And so I want to take a closer look at this text. Let's look back at it for a second. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. And so all devout Jews pray three times a day. Standing to pray was the usual posture that was taken. The problem wasn't praying. The problem is that their prayer involved performance and perhaps even pretending. We heard last week that the word hypocrite comes from the world of theater. A hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask and often played two different characters. And so an actor performs and pretends. And Jesus says a hypocrite also performs and pretends. In this case, the hypocrite, the hypocrite is pretending to pray to God, but in reality, they're performing for people, right? They're praying to be seen by others. The problem's not praying in public. We're invited to pray in public. Jesus prayed in public. The problem was the heart motivation of the hypocrite. As John Stott writes, behind their piety lurked their pride. What they really wanted was applause. They got it. They were looking for approval from people, and they got it. They received their reward in full. And this type of religious performance turns our worship of God into worship of self. It looks like I'm praying to God, but I'm really performing for people. I replace applause with amens in this scenario. And it's like, when you read that, you're like, well, how do I know if I'm praying like that? Like, how do I know if my motivations are off? 
Well, how do I feel when I do good things for God and people don't notice? Right? Am I frustrated, angry, resentful, prone to bitterness? Am I radically insecure? Am I fishing for compliments? Do my moods fluctuate based on how often I'm noticed? Or do I find joy and inner peace in the fact that God was honored and my actions didn't escape his attention? How would you answer that question? If you're like me, you would say, well, obviously, I find joy and inner peace in the fact that God was honored. That's the whole point. We are here for you. We all sung it. I heard it. It was loud. That's what I believe. And then someone snubs me, and I stew over it. Then our friends don't like something we post. For me, it's like, then I preach a sermon. And I see my wife, and I'm like, honey, seriously, how was it? And she's like, good. Just good? I, well, you know, it was powerful. Yeah, but like, how powerful? Did people cry? Did you see, like, how many people got prayer? She's like, I don't know. I didn't see. I was worshiping the Lord. And I'm like, okay. So it was good? Is that this is how lame I am. I'm just giving you a window. The, the, the point is, like, I think I'm living for the approval of God, and then I don't get the approval of people, and I stew on it for a long time. Or my soul's still desperate for it. And Jesus, on the flip side, he's actually saying, hey, when you, when you pray or serve or give for approval and you get it, so in this scenario, you're getting it, he goes, you've received your reward You've received your prize in full. But it's a lame prize. Because human applause and approval will never be enough. It's fickle, right? It's here today and gone tomorrow. It gives voices other than the voice of God authority to label our worth and our work. And as a source of identity and validation, it's a radically insecure foundation. Right? What, will they, what will they think of me? Will they approve? It makes us indecisive team leaders at work. It paralyzes creativity in the arts. It makes us fearful communicators. It prevents us from speaking to stuff that matters in the formation of people. It turns us into chameleons who change our colors depending on the crowd. It's like I have one version of the story when talking to my Christian friends, but another version with the God stuff edited out when talking to my non-Christian neighbors. And it enslaves me to the opinions of others when Jesus wants to set me free. And in the end, the approval and applause of people is a fleeting prize. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with getting approval from people for a job well done. Like, let's not have a weird church culture where people can't take compliments. Right? There's, there's nothing wrong with someone going, that prayer really touched me. Thank you. There is something wrong with living for the approval of people when it turns our relationship with God into a performance. And in this passage, Jesus invites us to something different. There's a story about a famous, I don't know if this is fictional or not, by the way. Um, just so you know. There's a story, take it as a parable. That makes me most comfortable. 
there's a story about a famous piano player who was performing at Carnegie Hall, and he played brilliantly. And at the end of the performance, he went off stage, and the crowd gave him a rousing standing ovation. And his manager urged him to play an encore, right, in light of the audience's enthusiasm. But he refused to go out. And when asked why, he responded, do you see that man sitting in the front row? That man was my piano teacher. And unless he stands, I will not go back out. The entire crowd was applauding, but in a very real sense, he was playing for an audience of one. One man's approval mattered more than the rest of the crowd. And in a similar way, we're invited to pray to an audience of one that pleasing and knowing God is our primary motivation. And that's where Jesus goes next. He says this, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who is in secret will reward you. Jesus says, pray in secret to an audience of one. More than that, Jesus invites us to pray to God as Father. Pray to your Father in secret. That prayer is this language of relationship between a child and its Father. And I know for some of us, the language of Father is a stumbling block. That Father's not a happy term for everyone. It's a negative term. Our Father was absent, or mean. We have father wounds, and hearing God addressed as father is triggering. And I'm so sorry if that's been your experience. In a city like Vancouver, uh, people might have a great relationship with their dad, but the patriarchal overtones of the masculine language aggravates them, right? Death to the patriarchy. The only one who's allowed to be a him is Satan. And so let me just speak to this for a moment, because if you're new to the Bible or you're new to this type of language of prayer, praying to Father, I just want to speak to that. And it will feel a little heady, but then I'm going to tell you a story. So this is almost a parenthesis. That's how I would love you to see this. Not as a parable, but as a parenthesis. Our language for God is analogical. Our language for God is analogical. That means when we speak about God, we speak about God by way of metaphors and analogies. Or God speaks to us in metaphors and analogies we can understand. That God borrows from our human experience to communicate to us in the only way we can truly understand. That divine revelation is always an accommodation to our limited understanding. That's what the Protestant reformer John Calvin meant when he said God talks baby talk to us. That God gets down on our own level. But we know that God is neither male nor female. God is not a father or a mother in a biological sense. And both men and women are made in the image of God, equal in value and worth. We know that. Nevertheless... Metaphors still profoundly impact our thinking. So why the predominance of male imagery in Scripture? Well, it could be because God was revealing himself in an overwhelmingly patriarchal culture, and it made more sense to the people of the day to use masculine imagery. But I think there was more going on. So stay with me. 
the scholar Elizabeth Actemeyer points out that it is striking that Israel only called God father and never mother directly, considering that all the surrounding nations had feminine deities, Isis, Timat, Artemis, etc. She then goes on to point out that a preponderance of female deities, both historically and theologically, always trended in the direction of divinizing creation. In these religions, creation is birthed from the mother goddess and shared in her nature and is therefore divinized and worshipped. And she then suggests that the masculine imagery was meant to safeguard the distinction between creator and creation. It was meant to safeguard the transcendence of God. Now, God is not just transcendent, distinct from creation. God is also imminent within creation, as close as our next breath, which is why God also reveals himself in feminine imagery. God is like a mother hen who protects her chicks, or a human mother who doesn't forget a nursing child, or a woman who searches for a lost coin and rejoices when she finds it, or, you know, God has womb-like compassion for Israel. So there's also this feminine imagery for God throughout Scripture. But Jesus still called God Abba Father. Jesus was not chauvinistic. He loved, empowered, and lifted up women. He loved his mom. One of his last sentences he uttered from the cross while dying was to ask his best friend to look after his mom. Moms matter to God. But let me remind you what Jesus meant by the term Abba Father. I had a friend who was on a flight to Israel, and there was a two-year-old child running up and down the aisle of the plane. And it's a long fight, and it's, it's very hard to contain the energy of a two-year-old on a plane or anywhere else, for that matter. And so this child's like ripping up and down the aisle of the plane, and you know toddlers, their center of gravity isn't great. It looked like the kid had gotten into the drink cart a little bit. And so, a little wobbly, but running up and down the aisle, and the kid tripped and did a face plant, and he hit hard, and just started bawling. And remember, it's a flight to Israel, and so my friend sees this, and then through the tears, this kid just starts crying out, Abba, Abba, Abba. Aramaic for daddy. And his dad came running to pick him up and embrace him and dry off his tears. And my friend was like, oh, Jesus is teaching us to pray to Abba Father. It's like childlike trust and intimacy. And better than a good dad who runs to us when we fall, Jesus invites us to pray to a perfect heavenly father. We don't take the failings of our earthly fathers and project that onto God. Instead, we allow Jesus to define God's fatherhood and redeem the term for us. And Jesus says, pray to your father in secret, and he will reward you. And I'm going to come back to the language of reward in a moment, because it's the thing that will set us free from the pursuit of people's approval in an unhealthy way. But first, Jesus goes on and says this, when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans. Don't babble. Don't engage in meaningless repetition. What is Jesus getting at? 
Well, once again, he's getting to the heart of the matter. The idea here is that God or the gods need to be manipulated through my words. Like, I need to force God's hand through the naming of the right gods and using the right words. One scholar says, quote, It included long-winded babbling to obtain the attention of the gods, or perhaps even the utterance of repeated magical incantations. But the idea is I need to manipulate the spiritual world with certain phrases or divine names. That's at the heart of first century paganism. That's at the heart of Greek polytheism, the worship of many gods. The gods are capricious. The gods are as spiteful and petty and unpredictable as people you can't trust. All false gods are like that, even modern ones. We worship money, the markets, appearance, power, approval, all fickle and capricious gods. And in paganism, the gods are a more powerful version of sinful humans. Therefore, you need to manipulate them through your actions or incantations or prayers so that you can gain power over them because the gods are not wholly good. There's this deep anxiety at the heart of paganism. And there's a deep anxiety at the heart of our culture because we're still worshiping false gods who can't be trusted. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so does the human heart. And when we kill off the real God, false gods take his place. And the need to placate them drives us into the ground. Just let that sit for a second. My friend Cam uh, is a pastor in Winnipeg. And uh, you can pray for him. That is all I have to say, and you know why. Um, I don't know what he did to get that assignment from the Lord, but he's there. I told Alita I was going to say that, and she said, what if there's people from Winnipeg at the service? And I told her I would say to them, make sense you're here. Welcome. <laughs> you... I could keep going, but... It's all a distraction. So anyways, um, and actually, no, I got to stop. <laughs> what I was thinking, I'll just tell you, um, when you pick on Toronto, people love it here because it's like the little kid in the playground picking on the big kid. And you're like, yeah, stand up to them. Think they're the center of the world. But you pick on Winnipeg, it's like, dude, don't kick them when they're down. You know, <laughs> so it's like. I was, I was expecting a little bit of pushback, actually. Like, come on, dude. That's not cool. Anyways, um, seriously, though, uh, Cam told me this beautiful thing. So I was hanging out with him two weeks ago, Cam from Winnipeg, and he told me that he and his wife have started fostering children and uh, babies and toddlers. It's just beautiful. And he told me about this amazing little girl who had been with her family for a while. And sadly, it's a story I've heard often. But at first, this little girl would hide food from the table for later. It's like, why? Well, because her little heart was already convinced that she couldn't trust there would be enough food. She couldn't trust if there would be consistency and care, so she hoarded food for later. But love can heal us. And Cam told me she doesn't do that anymore 
because now she knows she will be provided for. That's the power of a good parent, not capricious, not unpredictable, doesn't need to be placated, instead a consistent provider. And I wonder if one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons there's an increasing anxiety in our culture is because for the first time in a long time, we are living with cosmic fatherlessness. God is dead. Dad is gone. We're fending for ourselves, or so we believe. And then COVID hits, and we buy up all the toilet paper because we got to look out for us. Right? And Jesus is like, no, God is a good father who knows what is best. That's who you're praying to. And unlike paganism, prayer doesn't put us in charge of God. Prayer doesn't put us in the driver's seat. It puts him in the driver's seat. Prayer is not about, you know, conforming God's will to ours. It's about conforming our will to his. And the good news is we don't have to manipulate him to do what's best for us. My children don't have to say the perfect words or memorize certain lines or emphasize certain phrases to get me to act in their best interest. Because I know them and I love them. How much more our Father in heaven? He knows what we need before we ask. And this metaphor even explains why sometimes we experience unanswered prayers, right? My children ask me for things, and sometimes I say yes, and sometimes I say no, and sometimes I say not yet, wait instead, you're not ready. Our neighbors are moving in upstairs, and while they were doing it, someone left an old rusty axe by the door in the process. So I came home, and there's just an axe resting against the door, a rusty one. And my son picked it up in like a small mudroom, started swinging it around. I was like, no, 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 no. You're not ready for that. No one is. And, and so like a loving father, God sometimes says, wait. And God sometimes says, no, you think you need this, but you don't. You think you want this, but your desires will change. You think this is best in the short term, but it will ruin you in the long term. You don't see the end from the beginning. I do. And sometimes the no's are hard to hear, and we can't understand or see his reasons. So we need to trust his wisdom and his heart. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus says, pray to your father he knows what you need before you even ask him. And I thought a lot about this. I thought a little about this. Um, he knows what you need before you ask him. So it's like, why even ask for anything if he already knows what we need? Well, it's pointless, kind of, if the only purpose is to get what we need. But it's not pointless if what we really need and really want is more of God. Like, it's not pointless if what we really need and what we really want is intimacy with the Father. And that's what we need most. And so let me circle back to this idea of reward, because this gets at the heart of everything. If we pray or serve or give or fast to get the approval of people, it's a performance or pretending. And we will receive our reward in full. But it's a paltry prize. It's, it's a fickle, ultimately unsatisfying reward. We were made for so much more. But if you pray to your father in secret, he will reward you. What's the reward? Well, Alita did the work for us last week. She did the word studies. Rewards are mentioned 61 times in the Old Testament, 38 in the New Testament. Here are some things scripture implies about rewards. It can refer to life, the good life, eternal life, wisdom, freedom, a crown, some semblance of royalty or authority or ruling capability. 
But in the end, when you look into it, despite all the nuance around the word reward, it all comes back to one thing, one reality, one prize, Jesus. That Jesus is the reward. And that should be no surprise, right? What does God say to Abram, the father of the faith? I am your shield and your very great reward. Right? Things haven't changed. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the prize. And Alita asked us, you know, is that a letdown or is that enough? Right? That's the heart question we have to wrestle with. And the journey is to get to a place, and it might take our whole lives, but to get to a place where we say, yeah, he's enough. What else could come close to his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness and forgiveness, his care, his discipline, hearing his voice, walking close with him, meeting with him in the inner room? I've realized this past season has took a lot from from me, you know, from our family. Uh, and many of you can relate to a sense of loss. And it wasn't just losing my dad. Uh, my aunt, my mom's sister, uh, suddenly passed away a few weeks ago. And so my cousins are having a really tough Mother's Day. It's like another blow. And like many of you, it's been a tough year. And sometimes I wouldn't sleep. And I would lie awake and look at the ceiling and I would talk to Jesus. And sometimes I would be mad, and sometimes I'd be sad. Sometimes I'd be like, what's the point of anything, which seems pretty depressed. Because prayer is not about being good, it's about being honest, John Artberg says. But I also had these sincere moments, just to give testimony. Like these sincere moments where I was like, I love you more than ever. And I felt my heart fill up like a balloon in danger of bursting. It's like, in those moments, social media followers, influence, promotion, pay raise, other types of success, applause, I mean, it's not bad. It's very good. But Jesus, you're better. Jesus is the reward. And the worship team can come up because I want to end by reading a quote from a theologian. And the quote is straight fire, so get ready for it. <laughs> I can say that because I didn't write it. But I did find it, so. Hear these words. The critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And we need a generation of disciples 
and leaders who answer that question with a resounding no, because Jesus is our first desire and our very great reward. I told you at the beginning that Jesus' teaching on giving prayer fasting would force us to ask the question, whose approval am I really after, the very heart of the matter? And let's live for that day when we will see Jesus face to face and we will get to hear him say audibly what all our hearts have actually been longing to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. I am your very great reward. We won't feel cheated at that moment. Until then, When we pray, we go into our inner room and speak to our Father in secret. And he who sees what is done in secret will reward us.